Welcome to Money's Alchemy. We've had one hell of a week. Um, we've seen the 17th largest bank uh, in the US uh, go under FDIC receivership. And uh, we find it a bit ironic that, uh, you know, a number of lawmakers have, uh, uh, have found ways to blame the world of crypto assets uh, on what is happening with the financial system even though the world of crypto assets remains largely disconnected uh, with the rest of the financial system. Um, however, um, there is this ongoing movement uh, and you know, it's, it's being the acronym that's been coined is RWA or real world assets. There is this ongoing movement uh, in the conversations around cryptocurrencies about how to onboard uh, crypto assets uh, or, or how to onboard real world assets, which could be a house such as real estate in on, on one end of the spectrum or a treasury bill on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, today, we're going to speak with Jack Chong, who's written a wonderful, who's co-authored a wonderful report um, about uh, the uh, about real-world assets and about uh, how to uh, build a framework uh, around them. I'm going to uh, share a brief summary with you on that report, and then we're going to get right into it. Uh, but first, uh, my name is Asfi. This is Money's Alchemy. Uh, on this show, we like to dig into topics that are at the intersection of monetary theory, financial history, and stablecoin design. Um, I call it digging the money system rabbit hole. Um, I'm founder and CEO at Stablecoin Labs. And what we've been doing, what we've been working on is creating interactive educational content uh, that delivers comprehensible input in a low anxiety environment and makes learning a ton of fun. Now, with that, uh, let's get into um, one key uh, 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 bit that we talked about last time uh, when we spoke to Wayne Huang in our third episode. So we, we've we talked about that asset on-ramping remains a painful experience. We talked about how rupees in Pakistan end up getting instantiated on chain. And uh, the brief steps just to remind you were like this, that if you are currently living in Pakistan or in a country that does not support uh, a centralized exchange, uh, your options available are that you take your local fiat and you find a peer-to-peer -peer agent who accepts your money locally. Uh, that agent then finds a way to remit dollars overseas through some channel. When the dollars end up overseas, the same agent finds an exchange where they can buy a crypto asset, such as a stable coin. And then from that exchange, they send you that crypto asset to your wallet. And that's how asset on-ramping is happening for something very as simple as fiat currency. But at this stage, it's worth asking, and this is where, this is get what gets into the essence of Jack uh, and, and Teej and, and their third uh, uh, co-author's report. Uh, what is an asset? Uh, this is important from uh, the converse, for the conversation around, uh, around tokenization of real-world assets. The report says that an asset is, is made up of two things, representation and ownership. And when representation and ownership is recorded in a ledger, you get an asset. And I really liked that uh, they, 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 they highlighted this book, Mystery of Capital, uh, right uh, and, and up front. Uh, this is one of the first books I ever read. And because 
for me, this was, uh, you know, a fascinating take by a, a, an economist about, you know, why capitalism triumphs in the West. And one of the big takeaways of the book was, uh, well, it's 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 records and documentation. And, uh, you know, I come from Pakistan where bulk of our economy is undocumented. And that proves to be problematic because, well, this this uh, the representation and ownership of, of assets is not recorded in any ledger. And, and according to Hernando de Soto, that is challenging. So what's the challenge uh, as far as asset onboarding is concerned in uh, the world of crypto? It's in one word, what I gathered from the report was interoperability standards. And they give this lovely um, example of how uh, fixed income assets changed before uh, in the world of before securitization and after securitization. If you're not familiar with the term securitization, it's the ability to package loans uh, in different tranches and then sell them to different investors with varying risk appetites. Now, one um, key breakthrough that uh, uh, Jack and his co-authors highlighted in the uh, in, in in what enabled this breakthrough was something called the QCIPs. I, I started my career in Wall Street. I, I'd heard this term uh, quite often, and I know it's some identifier, uh, you know, that helps you identify different securities. But only after reading this report, I learned what the acronym stood for, which is that it's a Committee on Uniform Security Identification Procedures. And this procedure was very helpful in accelerating uh, the trend of securitization. Now, now, why is this this topic relevant as far as, as as far as DeFi is concerned? Well, one thing to keep in mind, one major difference to keep in mind as far as DeFi is concerned is that when you compare it to the traditional financial system, marginal costs to serve, I would say, the additional dollar or the additional transaction are substantially lower, and that's because there aren't as many layers and layers of intermediaries uh, that that you that you notice in the traditional financial system, um, and and so you know while uh, uh, I mean essentially it's like the the layers get replaced with uh, with with contracts that are auditable, and this this these findings, interestingly, were shared by the IMF as well. Uh, where the IMF highlighted that uh, they are finding that uh, uh, that the efficiency that, that on a on a on a on a on a marginal cost basis, but the conclusion was that DeFi has the lowest marginal cost due to absence of labor and operational costs, uh, and that is one of the uh, one very compelling reason why um, uh, why there is this asset onboarding going on. Now, you know, of course, uh, there is there is so another other than uh, you know, uh, so what's lacking? Like standards are lacking, and so what does the report say about how will standards emerge? Well, through competition. Now, this is something we saw with the internet, uh, with the protocol wars. Like, I mean, if you go down to how TCP IP emerged as the dominant protocol, uh, there was competition. And with the one difference with Cryptoland is that competition is happening across the whole stack. So how does how do these authors define the stack? Well, they have this asset layer, which is the representation and ownership part. Then they've got something that they call the infrastructuralists. This includes things like stable coins, oracles, liquidity pools. 
And then they have something called asset specialists. Interestingly for me, my intro to crypto happened through an asset specialist where a company showed me how to run a last mile internet service on a crypto backend. One could argue that they were tokenizing a last mile internet service. Uh, one could argue that they were tokenizing a last mile uh, communication infrastructure. Uh, and, and, and you know that's actually how I uh, got into this whole world. Now, where... Um, the one of the insights or one of the forecasts that the report gives is about or where well where is uh, where is where will tokenization start, and and here their view is that you know underserved areas. I mean the, the example they give on is, is they talk about Square. I mean what they're describing is classic innovators dilemma, where you start with an underserved market segment. You know, in this case, it could be, you know, a developing like some uh, it could be like some, you know, need in a developing country uh, and which is what they're calling the speculative slash developing uh, world first. That's 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 the, the those are the long tail assets. Uh, and and, and uh, at the same time, uh, what they continue to then talk about in their report is that uh, how crypto ends up absorbing uh, these real world assets is through something called the pincer. I quite enjoyed that term because it's a military term and it talks about a an attack being forged uh, from two sides. And so what they are highlighting is that on one end, we're going to see an onboarding of assets like treasury bills. We're already seeing that with MakerDAO. And on the other end, we're going to see uh, onboarding of uh, assets in, in in emerging markets or in, in in markets that are currently underserved. And so where will value accrue? And I found this to be a really uh, wonderful and interesting uh, concept. Uh, uh, according to the authors, uh, it's going to uh, accrue at the origination layer and also on the other end of the spectrum uh, where uh, this... Um, uh, uh, which I, I guess is the liquidity layer. Now, this is something I didn't understand all that well about value accrual. So uh, with that, what I'm going to do now is uh, invite Jack on stage and invite Manny on stage. Manny and Jack, welcome. Welcome to Money's Alchemy. It's a pleasure to have you over here. Uh, let's start with you, Jack. Let's just jump right into it. You wrote this wonderful report six months ago. Um, what has changed for you? What has surprised you in the last six months since you put out this thesis? Sure. So um, I definitely did not expect the reception uh, of the industry on this real assets. Uh, I think uh, I think towards the end of, of writing up this piece, uh, we noticed that there's a bit of echo, by the way. Okay, it's better now. Thank you. We can cut this out. So, your question. Okay, so let's do again. Yep. So, um, I was I was very flattered. Uh, I was very flattered when this piece has a really good reception. Um, I think towards the end of the piece, towards the end of the writing process, uh, we noticed that there's a lot more protocols, a lot more builders in the space than we expected. Uh, I would say, uh, let me let me comment on a bit of, of, of the pace of tokenization um, of the industry, right? So uh, I think on the protocol front um, of builders uh, trying to tokenize real assets and try to bring them on chain, um, that's definitely happening quicker and definitely happening in a larger, uh, at a greater quantity than I expected. Um, now, on the other hand, on the lender, so on the liquidity, on the bias of these assets, I think that's happening slower than I 
than I thought um, um, it would be. Uh, but but I think overall, it's you know, it's uh, I think we are at the right um, stage of the market where we start to question some of the business models and use cases and products that the crypto bull market has um, has ridden on. So mostly speculation and trading, and now we're going a lot more fundamental and a lot more first principles of going to the real world, which um, which I I personally see it as a uh, positive as a plus for the entire industry. Awesome, and and with that, Jack, could you help us understand um, this diagram a bit uh, about you know where will value accrue? And I mean, maybe let's just zoom in on this part a bit, like. Has your view changed on value accrual? And actually, even maybe start from the beginning. I mean, for me, this part was one I had trouble wrapping my head around. So maybe you can just give us a one-on-one on what you were trying to get at with this image. And then perhaps I'd love to also get Manny's take uh, on the same after you give us an explanation. Yeah, so this is a three-step approach, right? So I think there's a lot of uh, talks about tokenizing real assets and this diagram is a very concrete actionable step-by-step so it's a three-step approach the first step is origination which means uh, you go out to the real world you have a borrower you have a you have a person that you're giving you have a company right that you're giving money to um, and that's in traditional finance that's called origination and as you can see in the diagram on the left right you have a box within a box there are different tiers of assets and these are different types of asset class ranked by the return profile. So at the top, you get treasury bills, the US government backed treasury bill, um, and that's um, risk-free, right? That's defined as, as uh, risk-free because the US government is really difficult for them to default. Um, and then towards the bottom, you get uh, sort of more emerging market um, consumer credit that's unsecured. So that could be, you know, lending to um, credit card, lending to, um, uh, Argentinians or uh, citizens in the emerging market world for them to use a credit line and then you know there's maybe 15-20% of them is going to default um, and so obviously the rate is going to be higher but also the risk is going to be higher so really like that's what's happening on the left and what what's happening is then you have an asset where you have a loan let's say then you try to represent the ownership or even the details, the data of surrounding the assets in a digital form. So this can be done in a Web2 fintech so that would sit in a centralized database, right? So uh, there's a lot of fintech companies that does lending to emerging market or that does lending um, or that does capital markets even in the US or in Europe, for, uh, so to speak. So that's one side. But obviously, we're talking about tokenization. So uh, which means in this case, we're talking about turning the ownership and the representation of the asset on a blockchain. So really that is sort of the, what I like to call the middleware, the digital transformation, which includes the tokenization, securitization. So you have a token that represents ownership of let's say a fraction of a loan. And then that has to sit somewhere, right? That has to sit at a wallet, right? Or if it's a institution holding the asset, it has to sit at a qualified custodian. And then after that, you want to trade. You want to be able to move the asset around. And moving that asset around needs a ledger to record the transfer of ownership. So that's that underlying ledger is going to be the clearing or settlement layer. So that's really what the middleware um, in the middle, that's really what it, what it means. And then towards the end, if you want to transfer the asset to someone else, you need a counterparty 
right? You need someone to buy the asset. You need you need someone to hold the risk, and so that's where liquidity, that's on the right, um, or uh, what you know, it's just it's distribution basically, um, and that's the RAM of sort of different users. So from your retail user to all the way to your institutional user with different um, expected return profile, with different um, pocket size, right? They have different AUM, so to speak. Um, and um, so this is really the step-by-step -step guide is you start with origination, it goes through digital transformation, and then it ends up with distribution. Awesome. Manny, I want to get your take on this. You, you've written about fundamental differences between traditional finance and, and, and uh, you know, I would say this on-chain finance. You've written about vaults. Uh, it's a lovely paper that I've mentioned before as well on this show. How do you see this this movement of or this tokenization of real world assets? Considering that, like, there is a and you've also you've also raised views that, like, you know, we can't just recreate uh, the existing fiat system on chain. That that wouldn't make sense. Would love to get your thoughts on how you see this ongoing movement of tokenizing real world assets. Yes. By the way, can you hear me? Just want to make sure we can hear. Okay. You. Perfect. Yes, um. I was going to say, I mean, first of all, I had a, a, th a thought on, on the type of progress that I think Jack was outlining, I think, for the next few years. Uh, I've been absorbed uh, reading about uh, European finance from the medieval to the early modern era. And a lot of it is uh, the type of use cases that you describe here, right? It's, it's how do you finance uh, supply chains? How do you finance long-term trade? How do you settle across legal jurisdictions? Uh, there's, you know, how do you provide credit basically almost peer to peer between merchants without a unified legal framework? Uh, a lot of the instruments that we have today rely on treaties between countries. But before then, these had to be instruments that could, in fact, be enforced through networks of, of, of merchants, right? Whether they were the final consumers or just intermediate uh, traders. So. Uh, this is, you know, we're, we're replaying the, the 1600s and the 1700s again, uh, which is heartening because I think we've moved on from the 1400s and the 1500s, right? Which was, uh, uh, you know, when you, you have the great digital or back then the great monetization after the plague and we had the great digital monetization after COVID. Um, I, I guess I, the other thing that really struck me about the report was that it's quite honest about kind of the entrepreneurial journey. So I think this is how you know that Jack is a builder. Uh, you start with a niche where, you know, you do something unique that can't be done before. And this is the part where you don't focus on rebuilding traditional finance on-chain yet, right? You focus on the things that are only possible on-chain. That gives you one kind of starting point, I think, for, for building out uh, these systems. So uh, I, I, I fully agree with that. I guess my question is... Um, Ultimately, the, the way the system is described, it's described as kind of another set of pipes on top of traditional pipes, right? I, I, I wasn't sure whether the report's conclusion was that in the end, we end up with, you know, traditional SPVs and other legal entities at the core. And then, you know, we securitize, securitize them, you know, basically in the same way that we did before. And then we just do this last digital mile to get them on chain. If that was your vision or whether you think at some point DeFi does in fact eat the rest of the older pipes. And I, I wasn't sure what your take was on that. Uh, you know, the reports are 87 pages. So I'm sure you, you know, you wanted to save another 20, but 
Uh, yeah, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that. Like, ultimately, do we replace a lot of these older rails or are we just basically rewrapping them in a way that abstracts a lot of this complexity out? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really good question and uh, really appreciate you taking the time reading this. Uh, and uh, that's why I saved the juicy part for this podcast, right? I can't put everything into, uh, in, in, into the report. Um, so I think the answer to your question, it's both. So DeFi will, on the one hand, uh, wrap traditional finance rails and what has been done, what has been um, trialed before in a new format. But as the Chinese saying goes, um, old wine in a new bottle. Um, and uh, that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, there will be some new rails being built out in DeFi. So let me let me walk you through some examples, right? So that it doesn't, it, it's not a... Um, baseless uh, claim that I'm making. So uh, let's start with new use cases. So um, SV and I, you know, we've chatted the use of um, Havala, right, and the parallels um, in crypto. And so one observation I've made, and I find very puzzling, but actually kind of encouraging is the use of Tether uh, on Tron in Latin and emerging market. I think that is one of the rarest product market fit in crypto. Um, and the weird thing is, you know, these users, they also probably don't use Aave. They probably don't use Compound, to be honest. They don't use Maker. Um, so then the question is, you know, maybe much of the TVL that we've seen for the past market was uh, banking the crypto OGs, which I'm, you know, which is a worthwhile segment to target, but um, we need something more, I think. So new use cases could be things like, uh, that I find pa quite passionate about is um you know cross-border settlement cross-border use cases for stable coins um it can be even um access to uh international financial products via crypto rails which now brings me to the second point right so wrapping traditional finance products with a with a crypto rail the way i see this there's going to be a um there's going to be a tale of two worlds in crypto in the next cycle there's going to be the institutional world and there's going to be the retail world. And they're going to play out very differently. And real world assets are going to impact the two worlds very differently as well. In the institutional world, let's face it, um, you know, uh, I think the highest volume, the deepest liquidity markets are, I mean, US Treasury, that's one, you know, mortgage-backed securities, um, the ones that are more publicly known, you know, US public equities. These are pretty old school asset classes but they are also pretty well run there's no there's not much technology problem so to speak um is, is it perfect probably not really right there's a lot of pain points along different along the value chain but um i would say these stakeholders are pretty are pretty content with the status quo so on that part like uh, if it's so I don't foresee much actual traction picking up for tokenization of those assets. Um, I think there are companies, and I talked about this in the um, Drink ETH Denver as well. Um, so for example, JPM Onyx has a DLT-based repo market. Uh, Broadrich has a DLT-based repo market. It remains to be seen whether that can actually fundamentally I think it's transform. worth spelling out. Uh, it's worth spelling out like, so DLT is distributed ledger technology and repo markets are repurchase agreements. It's a terminology are... from 2017 when people are saying, ah, blockchain, not Bitcoin. Yeah. Distributed yeah. I just, just wanted to put that in there that, that, that what you're describing is JP Morgan doing repurchase agreements on chain. 
Uh, I just wanted to insert that in there, but continue, Jack, sorry. Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, so it remains to be seen whether those gonna have meaningful pickup. Uh, and, I, and I think it's tr- like, it, it goes other way, right? Because it's true, a lot of these like capital markets, um, it's still being run on mainframe or, you know, like maybe 90s or web one, early web one or web, web 1.5. Um, but I think that's more of a coordination problem, not of a technology uh, problem. And so that requires, um, <laughs> to use crypto terminology, that requires layer zero solution that requires social consensus to form over what tech stack to use. Um, but so that's the public side of things. And then there's the private assets. I think private assets, that's the low hanging fruit. Uh, I think either Bain or BCG wrote a report that uh, private markets is has the biggest opportunity for tokenization. So I also I also think um, that where crypto rail will be able to build out a sort of parallel world that you know uh, maybe it's an exchange for a certain opaque illiquid private assets, but heavily traded among institutions. It could be things like private credit, right, which is a um, emerging and growing very fast asset class. So that's one. And then on the retail front, I think trade I think trading speculation is going to continue. You know that's not that's not going to stop. Um, but what could be interesting is uh, we're going to see a wave of companies offering U.S. financial products um, to overseas investors uh, and wrapping it via a crypto wave. So similar to what Ondo Finance has done, which is a company that um, offers uh, a offers a product into a fund that then invests in ETFs, um, U.S. ETFs. So it's kind of a workaround, but it does solve some particular, like, you know, if you're a company in Cambodia, if you're a company in um, Nigeria, you know, you might not have easy access to the SWIFT or to the dollar banking world. And this is a way to kind of bypass that using crypto rail. Um, and obviously, you know, Ondo handles the sort of connection to the US dollar, dollar market, so to speak. So it's a very long winded answer, but Every, everything might happen, just like the movie, everything, everywhere. In, uh, well, let's let's try one other way to like pair it up, right? Like, so, so, I mean, like there was a while ago, you know, some people talk about that, you know, everything gets tokenized, right? Like from Starbucks cars, just everything. But I mean, obviously you guys would agree that, you know, some assets are just not suitable for tokenization, right? Well, let's, let's start with you, Jack. And I'm going to hear the same from Manny. Like, which assets do you think, it just doesn't make sense to tokenize. Like, is is okay? Is there an asset that doesn't make sense to tokenize? Uh, in 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 your view, Jack? Yeah. So, uh, like I said earlier, my heuristic for this, like, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, is uh, let's figure out the nature of tokenization. Right? Tokenization is a technology solution. A technology solution can solve a technology problem. A technology solution cannot solve a market problem. And that's a that's a bold claim that I'm that I'm making. Um, which, which means like, you know, you get players like, hey, this asset is liquid. We can tokenize it. We can make it more liquid. Well, illiquidity is a market problem, right? The way you solve it is, let's say you generate demand. Maybe you figure out a way to feed it into structural products and you have wider distribution channel. These are market solutions. You're representing it in a digital form. Does it necessarily make it more liquid? Not really, because demand fundamentally, market forces drive that um, sort of demand, right? So with that being said, that's my heuristic. So um, assets such as, um, you know, like I said earlier, most public assets, in my opinion, stocks, bonds, I think those are 
difficult to tokenize. Uh, those are not difficult to tokenize for technical reason, as like technically, you know, it's easy to wrap a token around them, but it's just difficult to actually get the market to use tokenized rails because existing um, uh, clearing houses, existing exchanges are very, very sticky. Um, and it's pretty expensive for institutions to move the accounts out of those infrastructure. Um, and then apart from that, um, I think there are also assets that are uh, involve a lot of real world logic. So perhaps uh, it could be a complex insurance agreement that requires a third party auditor or like someone to attest to the state of affairs of the, of the world. Um, and it's kind of difficult to you know put everything to the chain, to the blockchain, um, because the question is always, again, um, you need Oracle, just to, to the Oracle problem, that's one. And also number two, uh, it's a fundamental like, trust problem, which is like you need a third party to, to handle the calculation, to handle the sort of attestation. And it's not because of technology, you know, the, the third party uses Excel or uses whatever software, but it's just mostly because of conflict of interest, right? Um, um, so um, yeah, so these two type of assets. I had a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, I think this this first question of what you can't tokenize reminded me of uh, Phil Chen from HTC has a sweater, I think, that he wore to to a lunch uh, uh, with us once, and it said "non fungible person." And I was like, "Ah, oh, okay. I mean, that's you know, that's that's a cute answer. People can't be tokenized." Um, but I, I like the framing. Um, I would take it a little bit further uh, in terms of thinking about technological solutions versus market solutions. Because um, there's there's actually two types of places where private financial markets thrive. I think one is uh, what you were describing, I think, Jack, about uh, the, the rise of, you know, properly structured institutions, right, with the right legal framework that allow liquidity to be created for some assets. And that makes the assets much more useful for intermediaries like banks, stockbrokers, people offering margin, exchange banks, and so on. And this is historically what we see is, you know, you have public debt in, in Europe that's not very useful until you have liquid markets uh, that are allowed to exist kind of in London. So that's one way that I think about it. The other way that I think about it is this this long, uh, I, I think you call it the long tail. I think there's a there's an even longer tail of assets that are uh, ultimately not valuable when they have access to liquidity, but they're valuable in the way that they link together market participants in various ways, right? So, the classic example is you know the bill of exchange. Um, we ran an event over at Ethenburn and we had someone talking about blockchain, you know, blockchain based solutions for um, supply chain finance, right? It is unlikely that supply chain finance becomes much more valuable when there's liquidity for it because it's inherently an instrument that, where the liquidity will be limited relative to, say, government debt. But I think that the solution there will be a little bit different. Uh, but overall, I kind of like the framing. I mean, it's like we can create these instruments. That's the tokenization part. Now you have to go build markets and institutions and frameworks for them. That's actually historically was always the harder part, right? We had all these instruments all over the world, but only certain places thrive as jurisdictions for, for creating these markets. Um, and then the last point, which again, it's it's such a, I, I happen to agree with almost everything you say, uh, which is sometimes concerning. The, if we think about, say, you know, you were mentioned talking about public debt, right? 
the deepest, most liquid market in the world. That was not a public sector innovation. That was originally a private sector innovation that occurred after the great bubble and the great bust of the 1720s Mississippi and South Sea Company uh, equity uh, offerings, the joint stock company stock. So it was the first stock market bubble, the first stock market crash, everything's down 87%. And the South Sea Company in England uh, gets a chance to kind of reconfigure some of its securities offerings and comes up with this 3%er, right? So it's a security that pays you 3% every year. And that proves so successful, right? Because it's a perpetual kind of security. It can thrive in these secondary markets that Britain decided not to wipe out. The French wiped out their markets, the English did not. But that eventually gets copied by the British government, right? They, they start issuing what are called consoles, which are these perpetual debts with the 3% kind of coupon on them. Uh, so, you know, I, I do think that the private sector tends uh, to innovate, I think, on these things and they eventually get adopted by the public sector. So. I, I think you might be right. It will be a while until we see treasuries being issued in a different way. I think the private sector will have to lead the way on that. But you never know. Um, we can, you know, there are emergent nations, there are dig digital native nations that, uh, if, I mean, if you believe in the um, uh, network state thesis of the yeah. Laji, right? Um, we we see countries like, um, Lithu is it Lithuania or Latvia? I think it's Lithuania yeah. that's digital first. Um, they will be able to experiment with new forms of um, the government stack, so to speak, right? So yeah. the software stack that powers administrative functions um, or even like the, the monopoly of violence, which, which would be military tech, so to speak. Um, and obviously these are intertwined, right? Government funding is mostly used for the monopoly of violence, which is to, to collect tax, to administer yeah. a, you know, a policing function, et cetera, et cetera. So that's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, I mean, so so governments do drive innovation on some fronts. If, if asked, we will let me say one more thing. Um, so I, I was looking at the example of the Bank of Amsterdam. Uh, so what they did is, you know, they had they they centralized their payments infrastructure. They created the most effective, most efficient payments uh, system in, in in Europe, and this is like in the 1600s. So instead of having all these different types of coins floating around, what they did is they forced everyone to open an account at the Bank of Amsterdam. And they created a, a unit of account that exists there called the, the, the Bank Gilder. It's just a ledger currency, right? It's a virtual kind of currency. And then uh, they outlawed all kind of money changers and cashiers, they were called, right? So you, you weren't allowed to hold gold for more than 24 hours. You have to go deposit it. So what this then does is it stabilizes the currency. Uh, and then uh, you basically end up you know, basically doing payments on the banking ledger. So it's it's a central bank, non-digital currency, right? I think 500 years, a little early. Um, but yeah, so countries have been fantastic, I think, in innovations that involve things like payments and things that involve uh, kind of upgrading central ledgers for a lot of these assets, whether it be specie or real estate or other types of things. So I, I do think in, in the end, that cannot be solved by the private sector. The private sector did not solve the, the, uh, the, the you know, the, the big problem of small changes, they say, and other kind of coinage related issues. What really blows my mind about um, governments, particularly like when I look at like my home country's government, is that there's a bunch of this innovation happening despite them. Like I mean, crypto is banned in Pakistan, but 
on ramping is still happening through these unofficial channels and for me where the part becomes really interesting is i've i've grown to see banks as an extension of the nation state because they basically like you know help the nation state at least in the developing world you know keep their pot of dollars safe and you know they try to make sure that like people just can't that the flight of capital can't happen i feel like that's a big service banks provide to governments where that they lend to them through consumer uh, deposits and they also protect any flight of capital happening by making the so called switching costs very very hard but despite that um there's this there's this change happening where i mean even though you know like like i mean like this this whole on ramping i mean when i when i play it out it's a bit scary to imagine that you know if let's say even if let's say crypto remains completely illegal in the country so long as people are willing to accept these peer to peer transactions where they say oh give me rupees over here i'll send you a stable coin on this wallet like if enough people do that at a small scale it starts becoming quite big and if that starts becoming quite big at some time you at some point you wonder could this be like could this create like a flight of capital on banks and then you wonder oh dear god could this create a some kind of a total breakdown with the nation state and then you're like oh my god some of them are holding really powerful weapons what happens then that's a pretty freaky crazy scenario to imagine but i mean in light of the silicon valley bank um run i guess i'm curious to hear where your heads are at about where you see like do you like do you guys think we would see a flight of capital away from the banking system in you know in any market or 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 do you think that like you know this was a bit of a blip and we kind of go back to you know where things were maybe let's start with you manny and then jack i'd love to get your take on the same I'll be I'll be brief since I know uh Jack has a hard stop in a minute and I want to hear his answer. Um I I I think funny enough the actions taken by the FDIC and Treasury probably keep large depositors within the banking system. Uh what's perverse about it is that it's probably going to hollow out the middle of institutions, right? So if you have large uninsured deposits at, you know, uh, medium-sized banks will probably move them over to JP Morgan. So uh, this is the moral hazard, I think, that people were talking about. Suddenly your your larger banks get even bigger. And so your uh, mitigation of systemic risk ends up creating more systemic risk. Um, I will say, I, I, I think capital controls are always, um, as long as you're not an autarkic nation, like say North Korea, I think capital controls are always somewhat porous. Uh, I, I know this from, a lot of chinese acquaintances but like supply chain finance is a way in which people get uh capital out of china right it's just you start doing invoicing discrepancies and suddenly you have large dollar balances somewhere offshore that are not accounted for so th these systems even in the most draconian sense are always you know the the wealthy funny enough are the ones that are best suited to take advantage of those loopholes uh, and they're also the ones with the most capital but what do you think jack well, I think this SVB incident, it's a good, um, so the way I see this, I don't, the focus shouldn't be what happened, but what we think happened and how people talk about what happened. So my focus here is the narrative surrounding it. So what I find interesting is that it seems to be a slight crisis in the um, confidence of the regulators, either in the speed or in the approach or in a solution to this. There are also commentators that are very high profile 
you know, economists, bankers that have pointed out the moral hazard or the implications for this, for, uh, for the intervention. Um, what I find interesting is it seems to me that no one in the industry, in the crypto industry, has stepped up and perhaps filled the void in the discourse to really like um, uh, uh, provide and amplify the benefits of a crypto-based monetary system. Um, and I think one potential intersection, one potential lens is what would happen if things, if assets are tokenized? Um, and if the sort of back office, mid office operations um, run on a shared ledger, and then the front office of the asset manager invests in assets that are within that within the same ledger, and we can we can run a quick thought experiment, right? If you look at the FTX um, uh, crisis, I think DeFi actually handles liquidation pretty well, um, and there was. There were definitely bank runs, so to speak, on like, you know, large sums of stable coins being redeemed and being moved off chain, off protocol. But that was a pretty good um, deleveraging uh, sort of process. And I think maybe there's something that, um, again, going back, you know, this is a technology solution, right? So um, maybe there's something that this SVB crisis points to a technology problem or even more fundamentally, like a user behavior problem. Right? Maybe it's because of the fact that data is not transparent. You have no clue what's happening at the balance sheet or in real time balances of the bank. Hence, the game theory is put money out, put money out. Right? Whereas if we see the balances in real time on chain, people will be like, oh, it's going to be cool. You know, we, don't, we, we, can, we can wait for a bit. And if everybody waits for a bit, no one's going to put money out. So I'll be, I'll be curious to see how the uh, more institutional crypto industry uh, view this SVP collapse and obviously, you know, the debanking of crypto industry, that's really important. I think this is going to set the industry back, particularly for um, institutional adoption, uh, maybe even for tokenization as well. Um, and maybe shifting the, and this incident will probably shift the tokenization application more towards like private blockchain, enterprise blockchain, where the endpoints, right, the owner ramps are controlled in an environment. Um, and then really like, you know, the question, from, the question I have is, um, are there, does using a private or enterprise blockchain have any other benefits compared to an Excel? Um, I think, I, I think they are, uh, depending on how you view it in particular securitization process. Um, but, uh, personally that's, that's how I view this. Amazing. Well, Jack, thank you so much. We know you have a hard stop. So we're gonna we're gonna end this lovely conversation here. Uh, I'll just request that you leave your browser window open until the uploading completes. Uh, Manny, thank you so much uh, for joining. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to continuing this. Uh, and uh, Manny, if you actually uh, stay on just a little bit after I hit end record, uh, that'll be that'll be really great.